Okay, we're going to go into uh, our reading for today. We'll be in Hebrews 4:14 through 5:10, and if you want to follow along, we're going to be on page 1003, and I'll be reading Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is the word of the Lord. We're in Hebrews chapter 4. Going to just go through those last several verses before entering chapter 5, and we're going to start embarking on kind of the central emphasis of this entire letter, which is the high priesthood of Jesus Christ. It starts here in verse 14, and it actually goes all the way uh, till chapter 10, verse 18. And this emphasis has already been mentioned in chapter 2, verse 17, in verse Uh, one of chapter three. And so this section that we're entering into is more of the application and the explanation of what high priesthood means. Now, in order to understand or better understand uh, the high priesthood, you need to go back to the book of Leviticus. It's, I know that's everyone's favorite book in the Bible, Leviticus uh, chapters eight through 10 and also chapter 16. And those chapters in Leviticus will give all of us a better background Um, as to high priesthood because one of the things that this author has already done is assume that you know those things because he's writing to an audience that probably does understand those things because it was a passed down um, by by verbal passing down right so they're, they're passing down these things that we don't just automatically know because Um, priesthood, sacrificial systems, uh, those are things that are pretty foreign to us, I think, to most of us. It's just not something that we currently practice. But the the priesthood of Jesus Christ and the sacrificial system is actually a basic foundation to Christianity. Because without a good understanding of those things within the Old Testament, it's it's really challenging, it's really difficult to understand the richness of of the book of Hebrews and what it is teaching us because this is the most Old Testament of the New Testament books. And so we won't get an understanding of it without a fair understanding of the Old Testament. Now there is a lot of misunderstanding about sacrificial systems. If you were to take an anthropology course today at a university, um, a secular one, the thought from it will most likely be this, I'm not saying all professors would teach this, but I, I think the vast majority will say that those sacrificial systems to, uh, to appease a God or to know a God, little g, or to like get in contact with a God, those were all created by people as a way to reach those gods, that most of them will teach that. The Judeo-Christian point of view is completely different from that. A Judeo-Christian point of view is a belief that the sacrificial system is actually a gift from God, created by God, given to his covenant people so that his people can learn who he is and who God or what God expects from his people. 
And so it is a system created by God so that we as his people can get this glimpse into the wonder, the beauty of forgiveness, of redemption, that it's giving us this picture of that. And so when we look back to the Old Testament and we look at all the sacrifices there, it is pointing to a great fulfillment in the perfect work of Messiah for the Jew or for the Christian in Jesus Christ. And so this is what is pointed out here in Hebrews chapter 4 and chapter 5, that Jesus Christ is the perfect high priest and he is the perfect sacrifice. Now, in the Old Testament, we keep coming across the sacrifice of animals, and people will read this and think, oh, how barbaric of those people, how antiquated, what are those people thinking that they would do such a thing? Well, these are things that we would probably most likely agree with, because we don't go about doing animal sacrifices anymore. And, and it's very different today from the world of the Old Testament worshipers. The sacrifice of animals there point to several things, but something that all of us need to keep in mind when we think of these sacrifices, are there are three things that we need to keep in mind as we move forward. One of those things is, is that forgiveness is extremely costly. Forgiveness costs a lot. A second thing we need to keep in mind about sacrifices and then moving forward from them is that death is the punishment of sin, as the Bible has shared with us. Right? The, the consequences of, death, of sin is death. The third thing is that remission or forgiveness of sins can only take place with the loss of life. So those three things we need to keep in mind about sacrificial systems. So with that background in mind, let's, let's take a look at our text this morning. Now, before I get into chapter 4, I actually have to go to chapter 5. Because the first 10 verses of chapter 5 tell us a lot more about chapter 4, uh, verses 14 and on. That, that, that we have this great high priest. Not everyone knows the significance of a high priest, what the role of the high priest played. So when you read verse 14 of chapter 4, 15, and 16, it just has little impact. It has little significance. So that when you go to somebody who has no background of high priest and you say, Jesus Christ is our high priest, and you're all happy and glad about it, because you have an idea of what it is, for them, they're just thinking like, so what? Big deal. Like, Oh, he's a high priest. Like, does he wear fancy clothes? Like, what is, what's a high priest? So this is why, in order to get a better appreciation of what high priest is, a great high priest, we need to look at chapter 5, and then we'll circle back around to chapter 4 and apply that, where the author tells us that Jesus is the great high priest, because he's already assuming you know those things, but we... We don't all know that. So let's go to chapter 5 first, starting in verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when God called by God just as Aaron was. So these four verses are giving us the qualities of a high priest. So essentially what this is, is a high priest's job description, or a how to become a high priest. 
And so the first description is this chosen from among men. That the high priest was chosen from amongst their peers. Why is this important? Because he's a representative of peers. So you can't choose some guy from outside of the community to come in to represent people, to represent the community. You, you got to be from within. You got you to gotta come from the community. Those that high priest needed to face the same pressures, the same trials that everyone else there felt, dealt with, was tempted with in order to represent those people to God because that person was one of them and came from the environment so that everyone else was, so that that person can speak with understanding, that that person can speak empathetically. And he points to Aaron he goes, Aaron was one of those who, who came from the Israelites, one of those people. He experienced the same conditions as everybody else. He went through the same things. And so a good advocate comes from a place that they can represent their own community because they understand those environments better. They, they can empathize. Here's a second description. To act on behalf of men in relation to God. And this is what the high priest does. He had the responsibility to represent the people in matter to God. So you look at chapter 9, verse 7. In Hebrews, it reads this. But into the second, only the high priest goes. He's talking about holy of holies. And he, but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. So this high priest wasn't special in that he was just given these roles, and then he's just like this big shot, just parading around like, I'm the high priest, you know, check me out. That's not what he's supposed to do. His responsibility is to represent the people in matters to God, such as to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. The third thing, verse 3, the high priest was obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And you can read about that in Leviticus chapter 16, that the high priest on the Day of Atonement goes first to God to offer sacrifice of his own sins so that he can then be an advocate, a representative of the people. And here's the fourth qualification. That he deals gently with the ignorant and wayward. That the high priest, their actions were to match that of their heart. That their internal feelings were to be aligned with all of the outward duties that they were doing. To have an ability to empathize through his own personal weakness. That he knows himself to be a sinner. Therefore, he can't be judgmental, condemning of others. So not be harsh towards people and their struggles. But then there's the flip side of that too, in terms of apathy. Don't be harsh, but you're the high priest, so you got to speak truth with love. You can't be apathetic and just be like, well, forget it. They can do whatever they want to do. That's not your role. Their role... I guess a temptation is for the high priest on one hand to be really judgmental and condemning and really harsh and hammering the people. And then the other temptation on the other side is just to be like, whatever. Let the people do whatever they want to do. Live how they want to do. Just do whatever you want to do. That's not the high priest's role. The high priest is to say, we're all sinners. 
And we are to be grounded in the casting of judgment or giving up on people. That we are to be centered. And they had to know this because they sacrificed their own sin for their own sins first. They, they dealt with their own stuff first so that they could be reminded of who they are in the eyes of God and then they can go deal with people gently because they don't want God to deal harshly with them. So don't deal harshly with others, but also don't completely ignore them entirely in how they live because that's not loving. Here's the fifth qualification. Verse 4, and when called by God. And this one I find just really, really fascinating when you're looking at church history. So, called by God, meaning you can't declare to be a high priest yourself. You can't just be like, hey, you know what, I'm here. I know more of the scriptures than anybody else. I know more. I'm closer to God. I pray. I have all these spiritual gifts. Therefore, I'm the high priest. You cannot do that. It is an appointment by God, a divine appointment. You can look at Exodus chapter 28 for this. Now, why does that even matter? And this is where church history is just really, really fascinating. Because in appointing the high priest for generations, it was extremely corrupt in how it was done. Just like in world politics. You look at our politics and how corrupt systems are depending on which countries you're a part of, but this is how it was back then with appointing the high priest. So there was a group called the Hasmoneans. The Hasmoneans fell. And when the Hasmoneans fell, from that point on, the high priest was then appointed by the Herodians, not the Hasmoneans, but the Herodians. Herodians were Roman. The Romans, from Herod the Great, 37 B.C. to 3 B.C., he appointed the high priests. And so you remember, according to verse 4, the high priest is to be called by God, not by a person, not by a Roman governor. Then Herod Archelaus took over for Herod the Great, and he appointed high priests from 3 B.C. to 7 A.D., then from 7 A.D. to 38 A.D., the high priest was appointed by Herod the Tetrarch. And then from 38 A.D. to 44, it was Herod Agrippa I. And then it went from seven, all the way to 7 A.D. with Herod Agrippa II. Why does this matter? You remember when Jesus didn't get a fair trial? And it was Caiaphas who was the high priest? Who was he appointed by? A Herodian. He was not called by God. He was appointed there by man. Therefore, can you imagine when the readers of this book are reading this and they're thinking, called by God? We haven't had that in generations. They've just been appointed by Herodians the whole time. And so it's no wonder that our whole religious system is messed up. Because our high priest, who is supposed to represent us in our sins and bring them before God, is not even called by God. He's just a puppet of the Roman government to, to, to suppress us when we want to rise up. Caiaphas, take care of those people. They're just being too loud. Those revolutions, those zealots are really acting up. You've got to press those guys down. It wasn't about bringing sins to God. It was about, hey, high priest, you have some political clout within your own communities. I'm going to use you so that you can use your thumb and press those guys down whenever they're being too loud. So what do we have to do? 
Oh, Herod says, like, hey, you know what? Um, I'll rebuild the temple to shut him up. And I'll do all the things that I need to do to shut him up. But when they start acting up, Caiaphas, go handle this, man. So it's all corrupt. Corrupt from these Roman governors. Who, and these high priests weren't presenting the matters to God because they were representing a political establishment. They were representing fleshly agendas, not the spirituality of the Jews. Same thing happens in church politics today, isn't it? It's corrupt. Where the money is, or where the power is, or where the land is, or wherever, whatever it may be, or we don't want certain things to happen because you know it disrupts this, or it disrupts that, or this, this group here supports this party, and this one doesn't, and all this kind of stuff, and it's just all being mingled down, and we forget our calling, and we just get corrupted. See, every time we set aside the Bible... And we go about our flesh to go about politicking. We get into chaos. We get into division. And we're to do what the Bible says for us to do, but so often we don't. We just go by our flesh because we're scared. We're not going to have that way of life anymore. And we're fearful that this side is going to take over what we were holding on to or that it's going to make us really uncomfortable, or that we're not familiar with it. And we just start building up these walls to like prevent any type of movement, to allow it to be porous so that the spirit moves in and out of the whole thing, that we think that we got it all figured out, therefore just put it all up, and then we just keep it the way it is. But you and I don't live like that. We don't live in fear of our flesh. We can't choose our own fleshly agendas. We have to do as the Bible says. And God is the one who governs the church. God is the one who governs people and governments. And without knowing the word of God, we get swept away with what's acceptable to the world and what's acceptable to people's flesh, which is not who we are. In the fulfillment of Christ's priesthood is the negation of every other priesthood. No one else represents us for anything. Only Jesus Christ. So you don't represent me. Because I'm represented by Christ. The qualifications of the high priest. They are found here in verses 1 through 4. Jesus meets every single one. And then we look at the validity of the high priest from verses 5 through 10. Not a surprise. Jesus meets all of these too. Let's look at verse 5. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So in John chapter 8, verse 54, Jesus said, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say, he is our God. Jesus has kingly rule, he has priestly function, and that can be found in Psalm chapter 2, Psalm 110. And now when some people read this, um, here's some Christology that we need to go through. You are my son, today I have begotten you. So sometimes people get confused in thinking, so he, he was begotten, therefore Jesus Christ the son had a beginning. That's not true. That's false. The Son existed before the incarnation, the incarnational Jesus, right? So John chapter 1, starting in verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was 
not anything made that was made. So Jesus Christ is the eternal Son. So Theology 101, Jesus Christ is an eternal Son. He does not have a beginning. He is not created. Verse 6, As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I know there are some really big Bible nerds and you, when you hear of Melchizedek, you're just like, oh, I want to hear about Melchizedek. <laughs> chapter 7. Okay, chapter 7. Not today, chapter 7. And so, um, come back. When we get to chapter 7, though, uh, finish reading Genesis chapter 14 for homework, and then that will give you more, more background. Okay, and then you can come back with your nerd hat. But what we need to keep in mind is that the Old Testament priest offerings were all but a shadow, just a shadow of Christ, Jesus Christ's sacrifice that was the reality of it all. And the Old Testament priests had their day and what they did, and it passed away. But Christ's priestly intercession is for everlasting. It is forever. And this is really important because you and I don't have priesthoods other than the priesthood of all believers. We don't have priests. And so to understand Jesus as the high priest, we understand why we don't have what they had in the Old Testament, we, that we don't need to offer sacrifices any longer because Jesus Christ's sacrifice on our behalf ended it all. There, there's no other sacrifice needed because that's the ultimate sacrifice. It, it's done. Verse 7, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reference. So you recall Jesus on the Mount of Olives, Luke chapter 22, verse 42, Jesus said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And then we find him nailed to the cross on Golgotha, and he is crying out in chapter 15 of verse 34 in Mark, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Okay, what does all this mean for us practically to apply? We go back where I was saying, remember these three things, that forgiveness is really, really costly, that Jesus paid for it with his own life. It means that death is the punishment for sin. And Jesus took on our sins upon himself. That sacrifice. It means, the third point, the remissions of sin, the forgiveness of sins, can only take place with the loss of life. So Jesus died on the cross. He's buried in the grave. He raises up from the tomb on the third day. That's why we celebrate Easter. Because he really died. He didn't just take a long nap. The loss of life is necessary for the forgiveness, remission of sins. He died. And so his sacrifice gives us forgiveness. That is what gives us hope. So when we're looking at animal sacrifices in the Old Testament, it's all pointing towards Jesus Christ and this hope, this forgiveness he gives us. And if you ever wonder... If anyone understands your loud cries or your tears, Jesus does. He does. 
And we have a great high priest who is amongst us, who represents us. It's not like he had a silver spoon in his mouth and he came rich and he came and he didn't have to suffer anything and he just walked through life floating on the air and eating cotton candy or whatever. He went through what you and I go through in terms of temptations and the suffering and the trials. Why? To empathize, to fully understand, to fully represent us. And so Jesus Christ really lived out, not my will, but yours be done. And you know, so many times we say this, like even in the beginning of this service when I'm saying like the the joining of our churches, let the Lord's will be done. I don't even know if I really mean that. I don't even trust myself. You know? Do we really want that? Because if that's the case, then... This cup that I hold for it, am I willing to still drink it if it means it's bad for me? It's going to be bad for me. Or for that church, if they make certain decisions, are they willing to drink the cup? Or are they like, no, we're going to give up too much. Leave it. Leave it. Don't drink it. So, So what are we going to do? What's our cup? Or are we going to remove it? See, we want certain things to happen that aren't necessarily his will. And sometimes his will is the tough one. You want to drink it? Or are we going to remove it? Verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And so here's one of those theological things again, right? Maybe you'll miss it if you just read it really quickly. But if you read these three words, he learned obedience? What? He learned it? So does that mean he traveled from disobedience to obedience? Did Jesus do that? No. No. He was always obedient. So then what does this mean? The Lord Jesus learned by his suffering what obedience to his Father involved in practice, that he actually did it. So Jesus was obedient by his nature. Theology 101, Jesus is obedient. He was never disobedient. And he learned the significance. He learned the implications of obedience as he lived his life. Living through temptation. Living through suffering. That in his earthly pilgrimage while he was here, there was this learning of the significance of the implications of his already existing obedience in his nature, that he lived it out and then he was learning more about it because he already had it, but as he experienced it, he was learning it more deeply. Verse 9, another theology thing. And being made perfect... He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So, the question is, did Jesus move from imperfection to perfection? Theology 101, no, always perfect. That Jesus Christ possessed perfection of one who was ready to suffer. He was ready to suffer. And he entered into the perfection that resulted from actually suffering does that make sense he was already perfect but he's going into it deeper because he didn't suffer yet but because he suffers it is being made more perfect if that makes sense 
So you think of perfection as one who is perfectly suited to be high priest, that in the path that Jesus Christ was walking throughout his life, he enters into the discoveries of those implications of his obedience, and in his experience of perfect obedience, he became fully qualified to be the savior and high priest of his people. And this is the emphasis of the author, that he wasn't created, he, he, he always was. He didn't become disobedient to obedience. He's always obedient. He wasn't imperfect to perfect. He's always perfect. But through his suffering, through him actually going to the cross and saying, not my will, but your will, remove this cup, but if not, I'm going to do it. And I'm going to die. And I'm going to go to the grave. And I'm going to resurrect that it's all made even more perfect. That it's even, he's even shown to be even more obedient because he actually did it. And it's showing those things. Jesus became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And Jesus Christ is the only source of that salvation. And the author describes believers by their obedience. That there is a change that has happened in our lives as a result of God's grace touching us. And it's not by our obedience that you and I are saved, but the reality of our salvation is evidenced by our walk of obedience. So those who obey him by their life and testimony point to the transforming power of God's grace. And those who disobey and live by unbelief, no matter what they say, do not give visible effective evidence of the changes that God brings about in transformation. John chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. We can look back to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11, and it says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. We talked about that last week and how paradoxical that seems, right? Like strive to enter rest. Listen to last week. So that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And it is by our obedience that gives testimony to who we really are in Jesus Christ. Look at uh, verse 10 of uh, chapter 4 there. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Again, chapter 7. Now we need to circle back to chapter 4. After looking at all the qualifications, all the validations of high priest, now we go back to chapter 4, and hopefully that gives you a better picture. Yes? Hopefully. Verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Something to think about. First 400 years of the church. The church has no property. The church has no building. And yet here we are. So much emphasis on property and buildings all the time, isn't there? By churches. It was a very simple church. No priesthood, no sacrificial altars. Why? Because we have a great high priest in Jesus Christ who passed through the heavens. He is absent with us now, but he's present to us by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is dealing with God on our behalf. And Christ's sacrifice on that cross 
and resurrection from that grave leaves no further room for any additional sacrifices. And so he's saying, let us hold fast our confession that Jesus Christ is indeed our high priest. We go back to chapter 2, that biggest warning about drifting away and that we have to stick to the word of God and this truth of knowing what the Bible teaches about Jesus, this is one of those things that, hey, hold on to it and it'll prevent you from drifting away. He's your high priest. And all we have is the Bible and the indwelling of the Spirit of God. And, and when we place it on other things, like say you think that the success of a church is in the property it owns or in the, in the buildings it owns and all this kind of stuff. I mean, it wasn't all that long ago that we had these wildfires that wiped out that whole mountainside. It wasn't that long that an earthquake took down a bridge. Just like that, this can all be gone. But not us. We're the church. We meet at the park. We just move down to the park. Hey, why don't we just sell this place anyway? Why don't, why don't we buy it? Hmm. Our high priest isn't physically, tangibly with us. But we are encouraged because our high priest passed through the heavens. Physically absent from us now in order to be experientially present with us by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus deals with God on our behalf. And then we come to this let us. Last week we looked at the two first let us's. And here is the last two. So from chapter 4. Let us hold fast our confession. Uh, I, I love that this is plural and that it's us and our confession because it includes all of us. That we're all in this together and we all hold fast the confession that Jesus Christ is our high priest. That this truth will prevent us from drifting away. We hold fast to who Jesus is. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Taking on human nature, becoming one of us, subject to our temptations and what we've gone through in our suffering, he's able to sympathize with us because he experienced the temptation of sin. He did not experience sin. And it's not a sympathy from a distance, but, but living through that intensity of temptation. Can you believe this? Can you th just imagine this? This is so crazy to me. Because when you and I are tempted by sin, sometimes we give into it. Therefore, the tension is released. Right? Like for you guys who work out really hard, like whatever workout you're doing, eventually your muscles give way and then there's, the tension is released and you're just like, oh, man. But can you imagine if you never let go and how much tension is building up and how strong you have to be to hold against everything that's pressing against you, to experience temptation of every sin but not give into it. No one has experienced greater temptation than Jesus Christ because he never gave in. You and I did at some point. We did tell that lie. We did steal that toy. We, we did do whatever we did. And we gave in. And we didn't have to deal with it again. Can you imagine never having to tell a lie? And you're 30 years old and you've never told a lie before. And that 
immense tension that has built up over 30 years that you've never released it. Jesus is a bad dude. Right? Because we've all sinned. But temptation in itself is not sin. Experiencing temptation is not sin. Yielding to the temptation, that is sin. And Jesus never yielded. He never yielded. So Jesus' sympathy, his empathy, his understanding, that is real. Because he dealt with it the whole time. But he never let it in. He never yielded to it. Verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Again, that, this is the last let us. Again, you notice it's us, all of us, to draw near to the throne of grace with confidence, not fear, that the high priest represented sinful people to God and we enter with confidence because our high priest is Christ. And so like you don't have to worry, he, he has you. His sacrifice was enough. You can go with confidence that where you can receive mercy and grace from God in your deepest time of need, in your deepest time of pain, mercy for our sins, grace for today, because where can we really go to receive grace and mercy in our greatest time of need? When we are most aware of our weaknesses, most embarrassed and ashamed of our failures, most fearful of our circumstances, where can we really go? I've been ministering to a gentleman from East Hills Church who's in hospice. He has about a week left to live. And I just met with him yesterday. Sweetest wife. Sweetest family. But it's only Jesus who is filled with complete care and understanding in all that we face because none of them have had terminal cancer before. None of them have faced death before and conquered it. Jesus Christ, who fully welcomes us as great high priests, who understands us completely, that he can tell Christ, I died, I resurrected, and I'm going to usher you to the throne. You can be confident about that. You don't have to be afraid of anything. I did it. And hopefully we can grant one another the same full welcome and the same complete understanding that we all need help. We all need to confess our own sins first before we start condemning and judging people or before we just become apathetic and don't care about what people do. That we, we need it. And then we point them to Jesus Christ who intercedes for all of us as the great high priest. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for you. Thank you, Jesus, for being our high priest. Pray that we can absorb that, the, the depth of that, and we have all the Old Testament pointing to you, and I just pray that all of that becomes deeply implanted, that we can learn it more, that we be, become more obedient, that we become more perfect because of the things we go through and the things we're living through and we're coming out victorious, that we are looking for your will. And that as we pray for cups to be removed, but you don't, you, you want us to take it, that we would be courageous enough to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.